and I want to welcome you once again to October Ask the Expert webinar. And now without any further delay, I'd like to introduce today's host, David Molman, with Align Technologies. David, the floor is yours. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's Ask the Expert webinar, Team Cases You Never Thought Possible with Invisalign with Dr. Scott Fry. You'll learn two CE hours for attending today's program, and you'll receive important instructions on how to obtain your CE certificate at the conclusion of the presentation. Additionally, CE hours will automatically be added to your Invisalign Doctor Site account. Please note you're able to listen to today's program via the webcast, and throughout the webinar, you'll have the opportunity to ask text questions, which our presenter will answer at the conclusion of the presentation. I apologize in advance for being able to answer everyone's questions since our time is limited, but we will follow up after the program to answer any outstanding text questions. Today's program will be archived in its entirety one week from today on the Education tab of your Invisalign Doctor site, where you may also access archived versions of all of our previous aspects for programs anytime for CE hours. It's now my distinct pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Scott Fry. Dr. Scott Fry attended Washington University in St. Louis, majoring in chemistry in the University of the Pacific Arthur A. Dugoni School of Dentistry in San Francisco. Dr. Fry held a faculty position at the University of Pacific, teaching dental aesthetics and occlusion while working in private practice. Dr. Fry obtained his master's degree in orthodontics at the University of Colorado. A board-certified orthodontist, he is nationally, uh, a nationally published author, including scientific articles in the prestigious Angle Orthodontist and a future article in the Huffington Post. He's a top 1% Invisalign provider and has treated over 600 teens within his practice. So without further delay, I'm going to turn the program over to Dr. Fry. Dr. Fry, you now have the floor. Thanks, David. <clears throat> well, uh, thank you for joining me uh, this morning here. Uh, brief, uh, you know, administrative stuff, you know, uh, I want to make sure that everyone's aware that uh, everything we're going to be talking to about today is my opinion. It's not necessarily the views or opinion of a line. Uh, legal makes me put this up. But the core of our topic is going to be Invisalign teen, uh, some very challenging cases uh, with teenage and adolescent patients uh, and how we can go ahead and approach those. But, you know, if we're going to have a discussion about uh, teen treatment, I think it's really important to kind of talk about up front why Invisalign needs to play a bigger role in our practices going forward with all of the market disruption and things going on. So, you know, as with most things out there, uh, it's all really boiling down to kind of the patient experience, the customer experience that we're offering. And this is probably the singularly most important thing that we can do for our practices is to deliver an effortless patient experience. Now, you can get to your treatment goals a number of different ways, but the treatment journey that patients are traveling with our practices, both inside and outside those four walls of our office, is absolutely crucial in how their opinion and their feelings about our practice and us uh, are being shaped. And there's a lot of doctors out there that unfortunately kind of mistake, because we're only looking at kind of the beginning. We're looking at these conversion rates, we're looking at number of starts, and then we're looking at the quality of our results. And we miss this big chasm that's in the middle. And there's really kind of, you know, too many that are stuck on the old mindset that the overall satisfaction with the process is based on whether people are accepting the treatment plan uh, or if the result is good. And that really misses kind of what's going on out there. Now, after the initial exam, we get the appliances on, whether it's Invisalign or braces. You know, the patients really up front at that exam don't have any perspective of what treatment is going to be like. And it's something that they find out and kind of get plunged into the deep end with 
uh, along the way. And, you know, certainly they tolerate, you know, all manners of frustrations, you know, waiting a little bit too long for appointments, um, you know, broken appliances, broken brackets. Uh, but, you know, they want to get to that outcome that you promised that we talked about at the initial exam. And that's why that they're so determined to kind of soldier through this process. But if the experience that we're providing as a result of all of these frustrations is suboptimal, they're not going to be as satisfied uh, with the overall process, and they're far less likely to refer their friends. And their frustrations that they may even communicate to others and kind of vent during treatment may prevent other patients from seeking treatment at your office or just in general. And this is doubly true if there's a certain type of contrast that exists in your particular market. If they see a friend who has a dramatically different patient experience, either in your practice or at another orthodontist. So we really need to be kind of mindful of this whole process. Now, you know, patients, you know, I hear this a lot and they say, well, you know, in my area, in my experience, uh, patients still want braces. They want colors. They want this. You know, and I hear, you know, this, you know, nonsense all the time. And I've actually, you know, I've had the pleasure of working in a family practice where my father would give me the exact same excuse to explain this 20% gap between he and I and our share, share with Invisalign. So I know that it's not true. The patients are no different. The, you know, treatment outcomes are generally going to be, you know, the same goals that we have and share. So we, you know, know that Invisalign is an option for them, but somehow in the examination process and how it's getting communicated to the patient, there is a substantial gap in terms of what the patient is deciding is the best fit for them. Now, at these, you know, the exams, you know, all, one of the many jobs that we have uh, and our PC has is to get to know our patients, to hear what they're telling us and find obstacles that may exist in their life uh, or at their job that's going to become a drain on their compliance and their motivation during treatment and prevent us from getting uh, at least sufficiently to the goals that we've talked about. Now, what we need to be working on is sidestepping that by listening to patients uh, and coming up with a treatment approach that meets the goals that we have for treatment and is also the best fit for the patient. And when you actually start presenting these benefits honestly to the patients, because they don't know what orthodontic treatment is going to be like until they're in it. We know a whole lot more about the process and what they're going to experience than they do. Uh, and certainly, I would say, you know, almost every single orthodontist out there has had treatment in the past, so they certainly know. And, you know, we find out when we present it honestly to patients that the answer is almost always Invisalign for these patients. It's clear, it's comfortable, it's convenient. It really kind of fits the model of what they're being told, uh, you know, the experience for them should be like. Every time they see an ad on television, whether it's in the healthcare field or outside of it, it's kind of shaping their uh, perspective and what they feel like great uh, experiences uh, can hold. You know, everyone still buys these very expensive iPhones because of, you know, the singular experience that they're, they're offering. And if we make this experience effortless for our patient, patients, this is important because it keeps them happy, and treatment overall is going to go far more smoothly and more efficiently. So we don't struggle with these issues with compliance because we've achieved good patient fit. Now, Within this, you know, kind of model, what, uh, you know, what do we do about, you know, parental objections? Because, you know, obviously they're making an investment uh, in their child's treatment, and, you know, they may have, you know, uh, you know, certain opinions that we need to kind of work out with them. 
So there's the patient aspect and making sure that we have a good fit there. So treatment proceeds efficiently and smoothly, and they're super happy. But we also want to make sure that the parents love our practice and love uh, the experience that we're providing for them as well. And, you know, the issue always comes up about compliance. And, you know, really looking on us who are concerned with teen compliance, you know, this is mainly, you know, a, a limited experience that they're having with teen patients. The more teen patients you treat, the better the compliance is you're going to find because you actually have more leverage, in my experience, over compliance with Invisalign as compared to braces. Because, you know, if you have someone in braces, the worst thing you can do, you know, to threaten them with is to simply take the braces, braces off if they're not brushing their teeth and we're getting really horrific hygiene problems. With Invisalign, you know, we can put braces on many of these patients, and that is a nice uh, carrot uh, and stick kind of element going on to move things along and get them motivated uh, because of the privilege of having this type of, you know, treatment, um, you know, approach. Now, there's basically four main categories of parental objections. You know, a lot of these parents feel like the braces are going to be less responsibility. And this is a really, really great question to come up during the exams because it's an opportunity for us to talk about, you know, where the responsibility really lies and what the level of responsibility overall um, you know, with, uh, with treatment. So you have, you know, with braces, with Invisalign, essentially the same level of responsibility. They need to keep teeth clean. They need to go ahead and wear rubber bands. They need to kind of follow the plan and move things along appropriately. So maybe perhaps their child is not even necessarily a candidate for orthodontic treatment in general if they feel so strongly that their child's going to be irresponsible. And we don't want to get bogged down in treatment, you know, with fixed appliances, with horrible hygiene and a compromised result if they're not really mature enough for this level of responsibility. So that's a great discussion to be able to have with parents to kind of redirect it back on to the child and kind of keep things in perspective for them about what treatment's going to be like. Now, there's generalized what-ifs, you know, what if my child loses aligners? All of these can kind of be uh, addressed adequately by your TC. But one of the big things about what-ifs is, you know, what if, you know, my child thinks that they're going to wear these and we find that they don't? You know, we will simply offer a transition directly into fixed appliances to kind of eliminate that concern. And there's that team guarantee where they'll give you, you know, several hundred dollars back if you go ahead uh, and send back the, the aligner box. I believe it's like $300. Uh, we rarely, rarely, rarely uh, have to do that. You know, I can't even remember the last time that we had to. But, you know, it's a really nice, um, you know, kind of uh, prodding that you can do to let the patient know that if they're not doing what's required, you have an option uh, to utilize in terms of putting on a couple of fixed appliances to, to get a few uh, tricky movements that could have been resolved with good compliance uh, to resolve uh, with the fixed appliances. Now, you know, many parents may also believe that it does not work. The teeth don't know the difference. This is very easy to kind of address, uh, and it should really not even be a question that, that comes up, you know, in the, uh, the actual conference if the TC's done an adequate job of kind of prepping and discussing things on the way in. Uh, and then there's also differences in price. So many of the, you know, disparities in terms of uh, share of chair uh, come from certain pricing biases that are introduced. Now, presenting it for phase one or not presenting it for phase one treatment, uh, you know, $500 more from Invisalign compared to braces, you know, even so with uh, $500 more for clear brackets compared to braces. I want to make sure that we keep the discussion and the kind of focus on 
the outcome and on the goals that we're talking about. If I'm nickeling and diming them along the way for every broken bracket, for every little upcharge and all of that kind of stuff, you know, it doesn't really send the right message to the parent and it's very distracting and it creates this friction in the initial examination process that's really going to go ahead and be a drag on getting them to accept a really great uh, treatment plan for them. So as we address these uh, in turn, you know, we're able to go ahead and bring them down and refocus things on what's the best fit for the patient and why we're going to go ahead and recommend this uh, approach over another. You know, I tell the parents very often, I say, you know, my job is to, you know, it's not compliance free. I need, you know, little Johnny, little Susie's help to go ahead and get to uh, where we're talking about. And the only way that I know how to do that is with, you know, great compliance, great motivation. And I get more of that if we have an approach that's effortless for them, that fits what's going on in their life, their sports, you know, activities, uh, and is comfortable overall. The more uncomfortable things can get, the greater that friction occurs during treatment, the less motivation there is. And then also we want to finish efficiently as well because the longer treatment takes, the more that motivation dips off. Now, one of the biggest eye-openers for parents uh, is the fact that we can, you know, actually have an honest discussion about fixed appliances uh, and Invisalign as well. And the fact that, you know, many times the fixed appliances are going to unnecessarily elevate their risk for white spot lesions. And without us performing any treatment at all, adolescents, and in particular, adolescent females, are already at a substantial risk for developing white spot lesions with nothing in the mouth. And this is because they have a much lower uh, salivary calcium level than adults and boys as well, uh, and they have compromised buffering uh, capacity of their saliva. So you look at these epidemiological studies that exist, you know, if you look at the you know, female cavity incidence over time, it's much greater than males because of these reasons as well. Uh, but it's even more pronounced at that adolescent stage uh, for our female patients. And for many of our practices, that's a really poor kind of demographic. You know, females are much more mentally mature than males at this age. Uh, they're able to go ahead and perceive their responsibility. They perceive the value much more sometimes than their male counterparts. You know, a lot of these teenage boys are dragged there because mom or dad really wants this for them, and they're kind of disengaged. Um, and, you know, they feel like, you know, perhaps, you know, braces is going to be just this, uh, you know, process where, you know, we don't have to do anything. And those are kind of the patients that are going to really get you into trouble because now, you know, you're going to put the braces on, the hygiene's not great, and you're having these difficult discussions about trying to remove the braces a little bit early because, you know, the patient's not participating in treatment to the level that they want. But even, you know, without all of that, what's happening with braces is there's retention of sugars within the mouth about six to 10 minutes longer than with nothing at all. Uh, and the difference, you know, obviously between fixed appliances and Invisalign is one is removed or should be removed during meals. Now, obviously, if it's not, that poses a problem. We can identify that and address it. But with fixed appliances, you cannot take them out. They retain these sugars far longer, and that drives this shift in terms of the uh, virulence of the bacteria that's in the mouth towards more acidogenic bacteria that are going to metabolize these sugars even more rapidly and munch away around the brackets and around the cervical portion of the tooth. So because we'll be able to provide the exact same outcome with Invisalign and with less overall carriogenic strain to the patient during treatment, Invisalign is a far healthier option, and that's something that is part of the informed consent that parents need to be aware of. And I'd go as far to say that Invisalign is the standard of care for adolescent patients because of this fact alone. 
if I'm going to go ahead and tell patients that they do not have the option of Invisalign, I am subjecting them to a far greater risk level uh, than I would otherwise. So we need to get comfortable using all of these appliances so we can deliver the same outcomes with both fixed appliances and braces because the teeth don't know the difference. Now, you know, a big part of the patient experience as well is also is not only the appliances we select, but it's also how efficient we're delivering care. Most of patients and, uh, you know, both adult and adolescent who've been surveyed, I think it's like anywhere between 70 to 90 percent uh, think that they should be done in 18 months or less. Uh, and, you know, basically uh, the vast majority of patients as well think they should be done in 12 months or less. What do you think happens once they kind of reach the mental, you know, threshold where they feel or wish they should have been done? Motivation gradually starts to taper off, and we struggle with the process a lot more than if we're running on time and being efficient. So treatment efficiency in many ways is almost, you know, to use, you know, you can use a golf analogy, I like to use uh, a racing analogy, uh, but it's like finding the right line. So if you're not on the right line, you're, you know, and there's all this error that's stacking up into, you know, your lap times, and you're wasting a lot of energy with each individual lap. That's going, and if you, you know, kind of address that and now go ahead and eliminate those things, you're going to get to your treatment goals more efficiently and more effortlessly with less compliance issues. And that's about, you know, the, the one thing that Invisalign does better than anything else is eliminating wasted movements during treatment. And to kind of illustrate this point, let's go ahead and take a look at uh, a, an example of two brothers. You know, this patient uh, was uh, someone treated uh, by my father. Uh, he was treated with fixed appliances. This is the start of uh, the second phase here. Um, 25 months, 17 appointments, two emergencies with broken brackets. A lot of unfavorable growth during these 25 months with this individual, as you can see with the facial change there. But if we look at the ab, you know, the, the um, you know, kind of the flip side of this, which is his brother, who has a mirror image malocclusion and who was, you know, presents uh, coming to me for the start of phase two, uh, we were able to go ahead and complete treatment in eight months and six total appointments much, much, much more efficiently uh, than the fixed appliances. And why is this? Because all of these little bits of error in terms of bracket placement, uh, wire adjustments, um, you know, the overall lack of three-dimensional control out of the gate that we have with fixed appliances is something that Invisalign does not suffer from. So I can go straight to goal uh, with both uh, with um, with these patients, as you see on the patient on the right, eight months and 25 months, far fewer appointments uh, than the fixed appliance patient. And they essentially have the near image malocclusion. Now, there is no slide that is in Vitamin CR. Um, you know, I check this on every patient. You know, where I was trained at, you know, we know not to overlook that. We had really good training in that regard. Um, you know, to be sharp in terms of our diagnostic abilities and our clinical examination. So, you know, although I don't have like a tomogram or anything to show you like that, you know, we see that both the brother, both brothers have the exact same bright. So, you know, there, you know, I can tell you there's no functional shift here. But in order for us to go ahead and be, you know, very uh, efficient with treatment, the way that we accomplish this is by correctly setting up our ClinChecks and using optimal force systems. We are nothing without setting up the case for success in the ClinCheck stage. So what's happened with Invisalign over the years is it's gotten better and better as far as a product. So in the beginning, you know, we just had these clear pieces of plastic in a very crude way of, you know, segmenting and digitizing three-dimensional files. 
And, you know, along the way, somebody suggested, hey, you know, some of these keys are a little tricky to grab onto. Well, why don't we go ahead and change the shape of the tooth and create, you know, a handle to push on? And they said, all right, well, let's do that. And that worked well, and that was a nice improvement. But along the way, with all of the data that Invisalign has gathered, we went from these crude handles where we're simply pushing on teeth to optimized force systems that are focused on uh, custom aligner forming features. And now there's less focus on changing the shape of the tooth and much more focus on changing the shape of the liner. And as they've gathered more and more data, we're now able to incorporate the optimal path of the tooth given the movement we're prescribing, uh, which is you know, the, the evolution into smart stage. So when people look at Invisalign like a clear aligner company, that's not really understanding what their role is. They are a technology company. And all of these optimizations are driven by data and not some observational bias from me or any other guru that's going to be talking to you out there. And the Invisalign system, you know, if we're not using these optimizations, in many ways we're using a lesser appliance because we're not tapping into its full potential. But, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there that struggle with uh, these optimizations, uh, and we can talk about why that is. So there's basically, you know, six different major categories of why people do not have the success that they should have with these data-driven attachments and optimization. So first and foremost, there's insufficient seating of the aligners. You know, many of these optimizations, the aligner forming features causes a relative unseating of the aligners. One of the examples of how that's being resolved now is in the G7 optimizations for intrusion of central incisors. They have a retention attachment adjacent to the central on the lateral to make sure those pressure areas on the lingual are properly seated to go ahead and intrude the incisors more effectively. Extending the number of active aligners is one of the biggest ones. So people you know, want to have some arbitrary number that fits their particular interval. We'll talk about why you don't need to do that. But extending the number of active aligners, <clears throat> what that does is it degrades the moment to force ratio and it degrades your level of root control over each stage. And there's limitations in terms of 3D printing. So they're using SLA machines, this little laser. They draw out these different layers to go ahead and uh, shape uh, what they're going to press the thermoplastically formed aligners over. And there's limitations with how fine they can go ahead and print these uh, aligner-forming features into the model. So if we extend the active aligners, the forming features are not as interactive with the tooth at that particular stage as they should be. And now we have a decline in the moment to force ratio and a, dis and a disturbance of that, and we're not getting the prescribed force systems. We need to stop doing that. Poor placement is another one, and it's not necessarily, <clears throat> you know, poor fit of the template, but uh, many people sometimes don't actively seat the labial surface. The optimized attachments have some relief around the physical attachment. You know, you'll notice that the template and the pocket are differently signed. So the flash is not as much a concern as the overall height of the attachment is a concern. If the attachment is too tall off the tooth because you don't have a complete labial seat of the template, what ends up happening is the aligner forming features are not pressing in the area where they're supposed to. Incorrect replacement after loss, you know, ideally we want to go ahead and use a template to replace attachments, but what we need to understand is that the, inter the basically interferences that they're trying to eliminate in terms of the template design and the pocket design, the pocket being bigger, uh, in the active aligners, when we go ahead and use the active aligner to replace an optimized attachment, we need to go back in and reduce the non-active surfaces of the attachment 
So that way, it's now shape and size more like the optimized attachment would be. You can look at the ClinChecks, so that way you can see the size, and you can see how much smaller it should be. So there's not interferences within the pocket that are disturbing the direction of, uh, <clears throat> of movement. Failure to replace optimized attachments in additional aligners. Now that we have scanning technology, we can go ahead and uh, digitize uh, the arches and have these um, <clears throat> basically plaster attachments digitally and virtually removed in the scan without taking them off clinically. This is what we should be doing to preserve force systems between uh, orders of additional aligners. But what we need to understand is that because the optimized uh, features are customized to the individual tooth movement and they're prescribed uh, as a whole, those need to be removed and replaced if we're going to continue to maintain good forces uh, in the additional aligners. The only time I don't do this is if there's like one little tiny tooth that doesn't need anything else but a little bit of encouragement to kind of correct. That's the only time I won't uh, have the technician digitally remove the optimized attachments. The traditional attachments, on the other hand, because they're just a handle, can be left on, and actually you're going to get no better representation of said traditional attachments like you would from the scan directly <clears throat> because it incorporates all the extra flash that's not been accounted for in the shape of the template relative to the pocket. And lastly, the big reason why people struggle with optimized attachments is improper optimization selection. So with complex tooth movements, you'll notice if you are aware of the thresholds of these optimizations, you'll realize that for a given tooth, and this is most common for the laterals because there's like seven different optimizations available now, you'll find that there's numerous different classes of optimization that are triggered at one time. The software, which is not as intuitive as a human being and needs human input to function better, will use a very crude hierarchy, and that's really all it can use, to decide which attachment it's going to place over another. If you look at those tooth movements and you decide that the key movement is not compatible with what they've prescribed, you know, many times there's extrusion and there's a power ridge on a tooth and they don't really have a handle on, on a lateral incisor or something like that. They don't have a handle to bring it down and you know that it's triggered the extrusion optimization as well, what you simply do is, in writing, request the other optimization. Now, to go over these um, thresholds, I'm going to go ahead and kind of put this out here. Now, along the way, I think Invisalign has a similar um, PDF that they can give you. You know, we're digital. Take a screen cap of the screen if you want, um, so that way I don't have to read every single one of these off. But you look here and take, for instance, an optimized rotation attachment, which could be on a canine, central, lateral incisor, bicuspids. Uh, you know, they have some different ones that are available now. And it's five degrees of rotation that's going to trigger that particular optimization to occur. Now, what that optimization is, it's a pre-activated attachment and release in the aligner around the attachment and in the direction of the movement to accommodate the movement in the best way fashion, uh, the best fashion possible. Now, the velocity for that movement is about two degrees per stage, but you look at that movement and you know if you click on the tooth in the 3D controls and you see five degrees of either mesial or distal rotation, you know that that movement has met the threshold and it should be triggered. If the technician fails to place that attachment, what you can do uh, is simply go ahead uh, and remind them that they need to go ahead and put that on. But you can see that there's a variety of attachments, many of them available on the lateral incisors. And then there's some in testing, like these molar and torque, uh, molar torque uh, and expansion attachments. They also have them for retaining a deep bite. 
The thresholds are not yet established on those, but they're in process. And then we have others like the multi-tooth attachment for, you know, G6 uh, and uh, the extrusion of the upper uh, incisors for open bite closure. Now, these multi-tooth attachments often get preference above everything else, so that's something we need to be mindful of. And if we kind of change movements and do other things, it may inactivate, especially with a G6 attachment and the smart staging, it'll, it'll inactivate that feature. So if we don't want to, we can go ahead and remove it. If we have any question about what these attachments are, it's real easy to identify now. They're starting to uh, allow us to see this on uh, the ClinCheck. Before, they used to just say optimized attachment. Now, if you go into, it's not available on ClinCheck web, so if you go into the regular ClinCheck software and you just open it up for the first time and hover over the attachment, it'll tell you what it is. If you are in 3D controls, you have to go over the attachment and cut uh, uh, button, click that, and then hover over the attachment for 3D controls are available. So as far as attachment selection and design is concerned, always, always, always favor the data and the evidence over anecdotal information. So optimized, much better than traditional. If optimizations are not triggered or incompatible with features like precision cuts uh, on the molars or the occlusion, or you know, let's say that the tooth crown is just simply too short to accommodate all of the things that they're going to do, you can either you know, approximate what an optimization, uh, optimized attachment may look like on that tooth using a traditional attachment, or you can alter the tooth movements to add or remove an optimization that you don't believe should be there. Many times there'll be unnecessary tooth root movements um, that need to get removed. And, you know, if you see the second order attachments and you don't believe there should be root movement, go in there and remove it, and then they can remove the attachment. But using the optimized features, there's going to be far fewer attachments on patients. The attachments are going to be smaller. It's far more aesthetic. And the overall core systems are going to be much more uh, effective in uh, treating these patients. So here's how my ClinCheck workflow looks. Patients scan, the records are uploaded uh, by our, um, you know, digital concierge and coordinator. Uh, I will then, in the first ClinCheck, go in, kind of take a look at the bite, make sure that everything is, you know, kind of uh, accurately represented there, uh, see where things are moving in their initial setup. And all of the written instructions that I provide now, are, they're very short, but they're providing the broad strokes about where to go. All of the control that we need to have is with the 3D controls. So that way we can go ahead and manipulate things exactly how we want. Writing these giant dissertations is a thing of the past. We should not be doing that anymore, and it's hugely time-consuming. You have to keep this book so your technician can upload it uh, for you, so that way uh, hopefully the clean checks are, you know, at least relatively close to what they are, what they should be. And if you're relying on that, you know, you're really leaving a lot of control off the table. So I'll go in, I'll adjust the 3D controls, I prescribe the final alignment and bite relationships, I will then go ahead and add in global overcorrections for things like leveling, expansion, uh, you know, inner incisal angle and torque. And then I will, in writing, if I notice that the movements I've prescribed are going to trigger certain attachments, I will request the optimizations in writing off to the side uh, in the comment section exactly what I believe those optimizations should be. You know, it's pretty quick. You can use something like text expander and it just pops it right in. Uh, and then I'm going to go in uh, and basically uh, assess the overall, you know, features that are there and the optimized force delivery uh, during the process of making that request. So maybe I put on a precision cut uh, and, you know, or a button cutout or something like that to add. Um, and then I'll send it off. You know, it takes me about three minutes to do that, you know, uh, very quick. 
Uh, and then I will go ahead and audit the movements and the staging that comes back uh, in the second round. And if they've done their job correctly, I can just approve it right there in about like five, 10 seconds, super easy. And then the uh, aligners are ordered. Now, there's a couple things that, you know, within this, you know, realm of uh, looking at these clean checks, I want to bring up one specific, you know, type of overcorrection, uh, which would be, you know, uh, proper leveling. So one of the big things that people, you know, often bring up as they struggle with the line, liners is transient posterior open bite. So the way to avoid this is through prevention. So we need to know what the problem is. And the major problem is really a lack of space in the given arch uh, and how we're designing the leveling process. So what we need to prescribe is distal crown tip in both the first and second molars, uh, as well as just a little bit uh, in the second uh, bicuspid. And if you're running elastics or something like that, you can even a little leave a little bit of space mesial to the lower molars, especially um, if you're running class two elastics during the course of treatment that are closed in like the last stage or two. Um, but you want to also establish a proper interincisal angle. And while you're leveling and resolving the, the curve of speed, as you bring those incisors forward, you're increasing the arch perimeter. They have to procline and advance unless you're gaining space in some other fashion, because that's the only way that tooth mass can be accommodated. The, the, the curve of speed is crowding, and in order for us to resolve that properly, we need to provide adequate space. With braces, this is not a problem because it's an open system. The teeth float around on the wires, and they just kind of take the path of least resistance on the way to where they're going. But with aligners, we need to, uh, at each stage, because it's a closed system, make sure that there's adequate space and room underneath the aligners. Now, this doesn't mean you need to add gobs of space around all the teeth. You just simply need to stage and um, move the teeth in direction of the path of least resistance in the same fashion that braces would do. You also want to stage to and disclude uh, heavy uh, anterior stage and also disclude to avoid anterior, heavy anterior coupling. So if you have, you know, uh, minimal overjet that you're fin uh, finishing with and not like about a half millimeter because we don't have a virtual articulator here. We have, you know, a set of models. Um, you want to leave a little bit of room so you don't end up with anterior coupling that's overly heavy. Uh, that's usually the result of the bolt discrepancy and you end up with a posterior, um, you know, open bite in that sense without uh, a lack of space uh, during the alignment process. And you also want to check your IPR. You want to underdo it a little bit just because of the nature of the approximations of the teeth, but you don't want to underdo it to the point where you're now creating some interproximal binding. So uh, after an IPR appointment, you may want to do, you know, out, uh, you know, at the next visit, a check of the contacts with some floss, go in there and lighten up some of the contacts with the strip. As far as staging the movements, the movements should all be smooth and simultaneous. They should be consistent with the path that they would follow in fixed appliances. And all attachments, you know, at least from my, you know, in my office, I like to place them at the start because if you have an issue that comes up where, you know, they have a minimal crown height and things don't want to sit and you're not placing them right away, uh, you can simply go ahead and put them on at that appointment. I like to avoid IPR in the middle of the clean check because that screws everything up. Um, you know, you want it either at the beginning or the end. <clears throat> and you should not be increasing the number of active aligners in either arch to accommodate your schedule or, you know, to make both of them equal. Allow passive aligners to be prescribed. This disrupts the moment-to-force ratio with optimizations. It's one of the bigger problems that people face. If your stages don't line up with your intervals, let's say you have, um, for instance, let's say you're doing like an eight-week uh, interval, right? 
and you have uh, 20 active aligners. When the patient comes in at aligner 16, just scan them. Scan them, have them change one or two stages, and get the new aligners coming back when they come back in. There's absolutely no reason you should be adding aligners to go ahead and line it up with some arbitrary schedule. Stage the scan to work with your schedule, <clears throat> so that way you're not having to go ahead uh, and noodle around with the staging and disrupt all these uh, optimized forces. Now, if the staging is excessive, many times these technicians, because of the requests they get from many doctors about slowing things down, you will have to sometimes request maximum velocity for minimal stages to go ahead and bring the staging uh, down to a normal level, uh, or you can remove unwanted root movements during the setup, so that way things uh, will not be excessively staged. Now, here's an example of how I will approach a ClinCheck. This is a video of me uh, going ahead uh, and uh, setting things up on a very simple case. So you see here, their final alignment, they've not addressed the flight class two. I clear out the IPR, I clear out the attachment, do the clean look at the occlusion. <clears throat> so I'm gonna select the tooth, I'm gonna bring it back just to here. So that way, you know, I have <clears throat> the bicuspid where I want. I'm gonna lock the tooth position, turn back on the IPR, remove the space and the IPR. And then I'm going to do the same thing on the other side so I have a class one occlusion, right? So I'm going to go through here and make sure that I'm, uh, you know, maintaining good occlusive plane control. Uh, as these forces uh, of uh, class two correction, the very slight class two correction uh, is expressing. <clears throat> so I'm now going to unlock the tooth, make sure that I set up the occlusive plane properly, bring that, you know, my custom down a little bit, you know, and then I'm going to get a little happier with kind of where things are. I'm making those adjustments there. And on the right, what you can see is all of the root movements. Now, you can bring up that tooth table at the bottom. That's very confusing. It's hard to see everything. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, it's very easy to see each tooth and the attachments that are present. And, you know, uh, we're hovering over the compare with original will tell you what the movements are occurring, and you'll be able to identify those. So I'm removing on IPR. I see that the laterals are lingually stepped because the lingual functional surfaces are not lined up. I'm going to address those a little better. <clears throat> we got some big marginal ridges on that tooth. And I'm just going to go ahead and adjust <clears throat> a few things here with that canine to make sure my perimeter lines are appropriate. And then, you know, we'll be pretty close to being done on the upper there. On the lower, take a look at some things, make sure that everything's lining up. You can see where we are not uh, in line there, especially with that lower <clears throat> left uh, second Incisor. Now, incisor. now, the problem that, you know, that many of the techs face is they'll see a heavy contact and they'll move the tooth and keep it crowded to avoid a heavy contact. So uh, if you do some of these changes early on and there's like a contact, which there shouldn't be if you set up the contacts correctly, um, now I'm multi-selecting to kind of level here. Uh, what you'll do is, you know, request that the technician maintain the changes so that way they don't gum things up. Right? So now I'm doing, you know, just a little light leveling. He was already pretty level, so I don't need some crazy curvaceous mechanics. I'm taking out some distal crown tip that they placed in the lower second bicuspid that was excessive on that one side there. You can see again here, there's four degrees, no particular reason, the roots are lined up. So I'm gonna take a lot of that out. <clears throat> and I'm gonna set up, you know, things with the first bicuspid. And you can see I've got, you know, relatively shallow, over, shallow overbite for him. Uh, I'm now going to go ahead and place uh, an incisively beveled attachment on molar, precision cut on the canine and molar. 
and we're going to get uh, you know things right where we need them. Okay, so you can see the movements, the extrusion, the anterior teeth. Um, we have the arch forming tool and adjust a couple things here, take some of that root tip out, and then we're basically finished. Okay, so when we get this back, uh, we're going to see something like this, right? So we see these optimized attachments there <clears throat> that have been triggered by the root movements and tooth movements that I prescribed. And you can see now that the precision cuts and the optimizations uh, of the second order attachment with extrusion uh, are compatible with each other. And we're all set. So how do we apply all of this? And, you know, this is kind of a lot of foundational stuff uh, gone through very quickly. How do we apply this to our cases? So let's take a look here. So we've got an 18-year-old female. Um, here's her initials. She's class two, mild open bite. Her smile arc is relatively consonant. Uh, she's got normal buccal corridors. We look here, there's some lip strain. Slightly excess facial convexity, I would say within normal for a female, uh, but there is some lip strain again, kind of accentuating that. You can see the proclined upper incisors. We have that slight open bite and mild crowding, you know, even though the teeth are proclined and there is a diastema there, you know, I would still classify it as an arc sign deficiency. And a short connector. Now, what I mean by a short connector is what we're looking at here uh, we want to make sure that the connectors line up uh, 50, 40, 30% of the total height of the incisor. That's going to allow for, uh, you know, black triangles to be, uh, you know, uh, kept at bay, and we have good tooth shape. You can see here it's a barrel-shaped tooth. Uh, same is true with the central incisors, and we also have a little excess gingival. Got a class 2 malocclusion, so these are all things that we want to correct, okay? So we want to preserve the smile arc while addressing, you know, the alignment class two, and then I'm going to recontour the teeth and the, uh, the mammalon, buff those off uh, so we have a nice uh, tooth proportion. We're going to do this with Invisalign elastics and do the IPR for the connectors. Now, with this patient, we had a time concern. So we had, I believe, nine or ten months from uh, when her insurance ran out. So we are going to go ahead and be very efficient with treatment and kind of book it. I gave her an accelerant, um, you know, in case that would help her as well. Uh, and I wanted her to change as rapidly as possible. So I asked for things to kind of be consistent, you know, with uh, the occlusal plane rotation that I want for class two. So I want to intrude the upper molars by 1.2 millimeters while maintaining heavy posterior contact. So that way things are nicely coupled into that. Bite ramps are going to be placed in the distal sizal edge of the lower floor. So we have somewhat of a functional bite uh, ramp effect uh, to, you know, help the mandible slide more in the class one. And then I want maximum velocity for minimal stages. Here's what they gave me, you know, this goofy stuff here. You know, they didn't do any of the IPR or anything, so I have to go ahead and physically prescribe that. Um, but you see, overall, uh, when we look at the side bite, you know, I got an attachment there. The occlusal plate rotation is consistent with the class two elastic. I don't need to do silly distalization or anything like that, which I have a ton of stages. So now I'm going to make those adjustments. This is what I get back uh, with. Uh, this is technically scan one. I don't know why it says scan two at the top. But what we're going to do is a little IPR to kind of, you know, in the process. I don't want to do all of the IPR on the upper and run out of functional overjet during the class two correction. So I do it very lightly between the upper central incisors as they come together. And you can see how now we've got a lot of optimized attachments. The only time, the only one that's not optimized is that upper right lateral due to a short clinical crown height. You know, I could have done a little laser prior to the scan to allow that to happen, but that's okay. Again, you can see the little functional bite ramps on the bottom here. See that rotated canine that's going to be coming in. 
Now, when she bites down on those, I don't fill those functional bite ramps. They're on the distal side of the ledge. If she bites down, it hits the triangular ridge of the upper floors, and she's going to, you know, be disarticulated into class one, and the elastics are going to support the teeth. Okay? So here's where we are at stage 21. I believe we're changing every five days for her. Um, this is my second appointment. I put on all the attachments at the beginning. She's got a little bit of a slide, so it looks like she's more class one on the left than she should be. On the right, she was, you know, relatively class one, you know, maybe a little class, you know, three in this photo, but she's got that slide. So what we're going to ask is that we settle the bite and bring things together, and I'm going to start addressing these connectors a little bit more. So, obviously, I asked settle the bite, and what do I get? So I get, you know, some of this. We're going to be headed in the same general direction uh, in terms of getting the teeth together, you know, and I have that little bit of a bite correction that we still need, um, you know, to get things together. Now, when you have traditional attachments, and especially uh, with uh, the, you know, precision cuts on there. There's going to be relative unseating around the attachment. You can see some of the flash there that was probably not seating that molar uh, attachment well. So in this refinement, I'm going to catch that and really now bring those teeth together, and it's not going to be a problem. You can see where the occlusion was preventing optimized attachment on that lower left second by custom, and on the upper, you know, it was incompatible with precision cuts. So that's where we're at. Now we're bringing the teeth together. Another 23 stages, uh, we adjusted things, and now it was 25, and you can see where I prescribed the IPR. Now, what we'll notice here is that, you know, for whatever reason, like I just, they delayed because of the IPR, um, you know, the extrusion of the centrals. Now, what I'll do is rather than, you know, going back and forth and trying to figure out exactly what stage uh, the IPR should be done at, I will just simply do it all together clinically, not argue with them as far as, you know, how the tooth movement should be staged. So you can see here, I, I did this all at the insert, uh, so there was not uh, an issue as far as, um, you know, coming back at certain stages and things like that. But if I can't do it all at the beginning or I can't do it within, like, the last five active aligners, then I will, you know, kind of adjust some things. I don't want to, you know, have to do it in the middle. So you can see here, stage 23, fourth appointment uh, with her. You know, we can see that now we still get a little bit of settling. I buffed off those, um, you know, mammalons there, and we did, you know, the previous appointment, um, you know, at the insert, a little recontouring of that, um, you know, upper right lateral uh, gingival contour. And I just have to, once again, just tuck these teeth together the last little bit. And I had a little bit of overcorrection on that left side, so now I need a class 3 elastic, and this is what they gave me. You can see... That we've got better, you know, settling. We still need to go ahead and do that, um, you know, just a little bit more because of that elastic on that left side. There's that unseen effect that we see. And now I'm going to go ahead and I flip that, uh, you know, basic uh, precision cut on the left side so we can get a class three to line up my midlines here. And the IPR on the bottom here is just to increase my overjet because on the lower right second by custody, they had this really over contoured. Composite, and I don't go and I, I don't IPR, you know, composites and stuff. You know, never, you know, a lot of these dentists, uh, you know, there may be an issue with the composite itself, and then it fails, and it's somehow your fault. So I don't like noodling around with it. Um, but now I'm just going to tuck these teeth together. It's only 12 stages. She's changing very quickly here. And I've added some attachments to retain uh, the precision cut uh, so it's not feeding off of the, the tooth there. All right? So I'm settling things together. We know how to mash teeth together, you know, with 3D controls and get heavy contact. This shouldn't be, you know, a really big, um, you know, concept, but, you know, I move the teeth. The attachments are dictated by the movements. 
So you can see the optimizations there on the side for slight movement. This is where we were at at just over eight months. Um, you can see everything's kind of nicely tucked in together. Six total appointments for her before and after. Before and after, you can see the class two correction there. The, you know, for frontal facial change, you can see, you know, how the smile has changed for her. Nice uprighting of the incisors parallel with the facial plane, and then we don't have that lift strain anymore. Cephalometrically, you can see the occlusal plane change, retraction of the upper teeth for the open bite uh, correction. You can see with the bite deep in there, the good vertical and occlusal plane control to get us very quickly corrected into class one right under the time, you know, for her insurance expiring, so she's nice and happy. So then another example, very quickly, 13-year-old um, male, severe crowding, midline centered, you get deep bite, you can see it there, buckle quarters are excessive, very long central incisors. You can see how the under lip, the lower lip is under supported. There's a deep overbite, high canines, small laterals, so we're going to leave a little room there, class two. We know what we need to correct here, but the manner in which we're correcting is going to be through advancement of the lower incisors to support that lower lip. We're going to broaden out the arches for him uh, and, you know, get that bite together and then recontour those upper anterior incisors and leave a little room for the lateral to be bonded. So with vertical control in aligners, what we see here, you know, here's our occlusal, uh, you know, planes, their point of resistance uh, for the dentition. When you go ahead and have uh, the aligners in, you know, if you have anterior and posterior tooth contact, there's kind of a, you know, nice evening out. Uh, so there's not really a lot of extrusive forces. So there's nice vertical control. He tended to be more vertically growing patients so is a wonderful option for him, but you can see how it will also kind of impact where they're contacting will impact how the teeth will align. So there's not necessarily a dramatic intrusive effect via a bite ramp or, uh, you know, contact with the aligners, but it's going to change how the overall force system for all 14 teeth is going to express during treatment, predominantly in the anterior for something like this. So you can see uh, I prescribed class two precision cuts, and, you know, what I wanted them to do, this was right before we had the correction distribute over all the aligners, I wanted to approximate, uh, you know, for teaching purposes, how the lower arch is going to unravel. So what I did was I wanted uh, that lower arch to unravel forward. You can see here, 32 stages. I do have the attachments in white. I didn't bother to go back and re-record this. Um, but we're going to, you know, align the upper centrals, you know, and laterals, more so on the basis of the gingival contours, because we know I'm going to buff out the edges of those centrals to make them more in proportion. We want them 80% wide as they are long. Little IPR for the Bolton. And you can see on the lower how that's going to nicely unravel forward and level that lower arch. So those lower incisors need to recline as they level. All of this is something that's uh, inherent to class two correction with elastics. So all of this is kind of working hand in hand. Many of these deep bite class two patients are going to be the ideal patients to treat for class two. He doesn't have his, uh, you know, um, second lowers in, so we have to watch those. But again, you can see the bite ramp on the lower uh, bicuspid. Many times we have to do this because there's excess overjet, um, and this is uh, a better alternative to, than the canines, which especially for him, his canines are very high. How could I possibly get contact with the bite ramp on those? Um, and you can see here, 
six months, you know, we're in great shape. You know, he's changing weekly. Uh, and you can see that the now he's kind of contacting because the lower sevens erupted on that left side. So this is like my, I think, second or third appointment with him. Um, you can see what we prescribed in terms of what we saw at that stage with leveling. Uh, we're incorporating these erupting teeth now. We want to settle the bite. So the bite, we have some incisors just to kind of make sure those teeth are settled. I want the teeth that are extruding to be apart from each other so they can come together. Okay? So we didn't have the opportunity to have a traditional or attached front of canines because of the precision cut. So I just kind of went with the traditional ones. But you can see kind of what we had here. There was a little IPR or virtual IPR because sometimes, you know, they may think there's a contact there, but there's not between the centrals. And again, for the Bolton, you know, I need to redo the IPR. Now, there's one thing I should mention. You look here on the upper right, first molar, I extended the aligner, or I didn't catch that the aligner was extended onto the distal, and the second molar's not in. Well, when that tooth comes in, it's going to disrupt how the aligner's seating, and it's going to go ahead and do some very weird stuff to the bite there. So you can see here the arches are not coordinated. I'm in 10 months in treatment. I need to get done, okay? But you can see what I prescribed. I didn't expand these arches, right? I had the bite ramps there. I'm kind of torquing and constricting and just keeping that arch form, bringing things together now, just like I would want with wire bends. I look at it exactly how I would uh, drive towards the, the outcome of fixed appliances, and I prescribe the forces because the teeth don't know the difference. But you can see the alignment changes here because of that second molar getting stuck up under that um, aligner. So make sure that you uh, ask them to trim the distal of these aligners if they haven't done so so the teeth can come in. And you can see how that's in, impeded the arch coordination and caused the overbite. So what I have to do, get these teeth together. And now he's kind of stepping it up because we've been in treatment for uh, a while. These teeth are cooking along. They're moving really nice. Now what I want to do, I want to put in, how I would treat this with braces, I would put a triangular class two kind of elastic on to help settle things together. So I do that with a button cutout so I can actively erupt those canines down into position. You can see the optimized attachments that will help keep some of those power ridges on the upper centrals. And, you know, we'll get those uh, teeth nicely together, okay? So now i got to settle the bite together. I do that in these 20 aligners. I think he was changing two aligners a week at this stage. Um, and here we are, you know, right before the finish, like three weeks before the removal. I want to settle in the elastic. Now, if you find that, you know, there's a really minor amount of open bite in the back uh, and it doesn't require refinement, what you can do is use a hole punch, go in there, put some settling elastics in, have those teeth actively pulled into the aligners. Don't section them because you're going to have some side effects and use it like a positioner in the back there. And those will get those together. And what I did was, was I put a little flowable around the upper laterals and on that mesial concavity of the upper canine because he had a pointy canine. Uh, and then I gave him a wraparound holly um, that uh, was based on his um, final STL file that was exported from the clincher. Uh, and we had, you know, that fitting together really nicely. We delivered that at uh, the eighth appointment and 13 months into treatment. So you see here, before and after, really quick, you know, efficient treatment. You can see how with the IPR and smoothing, there's a little space there. I told him that he needs to go to the dentist now to get that finalized uh, around the distal lateral, but I don't want to leave like a ledge there. So I'll go with the IPR to make sure a, a small uh, uh, polishing disc to kind of, or, um, you know, strip to uh, polish that off and make sure that it's smooth. And you can see this is right after, you know, we put those on. And he needs a little desiccation of the enamel so you kind of see the margin there. But he's going to go ahead and get that taken care of. The gums are a little puffy because we kept him in that last 
a liner or two for a little longer to settle those in, about three, four weeks. And then you can see here, you know, how we've treated the smile arc nicely. You can see how we have more support to that lower lip and the oral commissure there. Labial mental sulcus has also been advanced, and that's kind of what I'm talking about with that lower lip support in the dental position. What did we see? So we see here the lower teeth, not really phenomenal growth or anything like that, you know, a little bit. That always helps. Great growers are great class two patients. Uh, and then you can see that advance of the lower teeth, how they unraveled, and that occlusive plane change from the elastics. So all of that is kind of working together uh, to go ahead and produce uh, the right outcome. Um, when you look at a class three patient here, uh, I want to go ahead and do, you know, a, um, a growth modification patient. It's the exact same concept of these patients flipped upside down. I'm going to show you the patient um, from the... Uh, initial, but I'm going to scroll through here and get to uh, the slides with some growth modification because I know we have that uh, mandibular forward advanced enterprise coming. So we look here, you know, at what's coming down the pike, right? So we've got some phenomenal tools. Invisalign is always going ahead, utilizing the data to go ahead and improve the product. Uh, the mandibular advancement feature, uh, MAF, is coming soon. Uh, you can see here on an adult patient who uh, brought with her some Canadian plastic. Uh, you can see the ClinCheck here, how that's going to look for us when it's available. Um, the FDA approves that. It's not FDA approved currently. So, you know, the one thing that I will say you got to keep in mind is a vertical opening that they have in the ClinCheck uh, for setting it up correctly. But here's how they look in the mouth. You can see even though it's supposed to be two millimeter advancements, they're, you know, it's a lot more than that because of the vertical effect. So this is the manipular advancement feature. This is what it looks like. This is what's coming. This patient did not want to wear rubber bands, despite being an, you know, an adult. We're not going to get growth modification. But uh, what's going to happen for her is, you know, she will have to wear rubber bands less, which is always a good thing for her. And she's responded very nicely uh, with this in the mouth. Her one complaint is that saliva will tend to accumulate in these uh, wings, which is fine. Uh, and you also need to kind of watch for it biting down vertically on the wings, either during sleep or in an adult, you know, sometimes it'll happen as they kind of get to class one. So there's a couple things, uh, you know, that you can do to kind of uh, watch out for that is basically uh, run a light elastic using like a, um, uh, basically a, a, a precision cut tool. You can get this from New Freedy and they're clear, um, I think it's a clear correction or clear essentials, um, you know, uh, instrument kits. You can make those cuts in have them wear that at night so they don't uh, unconsciously open up, lean back with their jaw and slam down on the, uh, uh, the wings bending it. That's always, you know, usually the case. So if you have them wear a nighttime elastic, it keeps them forward. Uh, during the day, they can be aware of not biting down in it. But that can be the problem. That's how you get around it for these patients, okay? So until that point, you know, we have to use, uh, you know, fixed functional appliances if that's the route we want to take. I do not place uh, lower appliances. Uh, with these, uh, nothing is going to increase the total surface area of the PDL in the lower arch. So you're not doing anything with appliances on the bottom that's going to improve your anchorage. You may improve some of the uh, overall side effects that are going to happen to the arch uh, with uh, the lingual arch that we have here. You know, it's going to create a curve of speed, kind of intrude by cuspids and, uh, you know, really trash the occlusion. We'll have to recover that. Um, you know, that's something that I'm not seeing as much with the uh, mandibular advancement feature from Invisalign. Uh, it's a really nice uh, option for us. 
And what you can see here is what I'll do to set this up is I'll virtually remove the upper molars. Um, you know, I will do uh, precision cuts on the upper fours, the upper threes. I will prescribe bite ramps uh, or attachments as needed and increase the number of aligners here, just in this case, because I know there's a second phase coming to accommodate the growth modification timeline because I got the compliance in. I don't want to run out of aligners during the course of treatment. And certainly that happens. Um, but, you know, patients will kind of wear through these fairly quickly. Maybe uh, they'll change into the next one even sooner than a week and, you know, it's difficult to predict. But I will only deliver the upper aligners. You can even just order upper aligners only, which is fine too. Uh, but, you know, this is what it will generally look like on a setup. You can see the precision cut here. That's going to allow me, if there's space opening, to go ahead and run a light elastic to the hook on the, um, you know, uh, upper crown. So that way we can consolidate the upper arch. And there's, you know, you don't really need tomograms to make sure that the condo is seated. Just don't tie the arch together and see how much space is opening. And if there's space opening, guess what? They're not in CR and you need to continue the correction or retract the upper teeth uh, or you're not simply getting the growth response. And you've got a wonderful headgear now, which... You know, this is far better compliance than we're going to get with uh, with headgear. Um, you know, it's not really a great, uh, you know, great-looking uh, option for patients, but, you know, sometimes it is a necessary option until innovation kind of displaces uh, appliances like this. So we may need to punch a button a hole on the upper thighs if there's an interference. If the space opens, we're going to use light elastics uh, to uh, the precision cuts, as I mentioned. And the aligners may begin to wear on the upper uh, incisal edges uh, as we begin that advancement. Uh, so we will, you know, change to the next one maybe a little bit sooner. But when the incisors are retroclined with a class two patient, simply just run through those aligners as fast as they possibly can. And you really don't need to kind of line those up to start beginning the advancement. I, I never go more than two millimeters at the beginning. That's the lab has specific instructions from that. I uh, utilize specialty appliances for that. Uh, and, you know, I will just kind of walk them through two-millimeter advancements until they're out to uh, full correction. So I'll quickly go through this, uh, and then we're going to be able to get any questions because I believe I am running a little bit over, and that's okay. I had a whole bunch of other cases, but, you know, it's, uh, I, I really want to get, you know, some of those foundational aspects kind of really driven home for you guys. Uh, so that way uh, we can set these up correctly. And you can see kind of what I'm doing and how I'm approaching things with these cases. Now, got a 17-year-old male here. You know, he had been in somebody's observation pool somewhere, uh, was sitting on this class two for some time, I guess. Obviously, that's upsetting to the parents when all of a sudden it's like a five-alarm fire when they notice he was like posturing forward at like every other visit. They want to check the CR. Um, and they, you know, came over and, um, you know, wanted, you know, someone who could, uh, could treat this. And, you know, obviously he's not growing very much, so we're going to have to, you know, keep our fingers crossed uh, and, you know, do things to encourage that growth as much as possible. Because I don't want to have to do, they did not want jaw surgery at all, and I don't want to have to just retract all of these upper teeth uh, too much or blow all the lower teeth forward. Uh, and really stress the periodontium and lead to some facial decline for him. So he's got relatively normal facial taper. You can see that mild mandibular asymmetry. Flat smile arc, you can see the upper incisors are up off of that. And the smile arc is the entirety of the upper occlusal plane, not just the front six feet, so we need to consider that. Midline centered excess buccal corridors. 
deficient lower aesthetic contour uh, in uh, this patient. You can see with the chin and lower lip and back, you can see that down triangle commissure there. Again, flat smile arc. You can see how the chin's back. When he smiles, you can see how he postures forward, right? And I guess that's what was, you know, uh, when people aren't looking, they're going to miss it. So we really want to protect that upper incisor position as much as possible. I know it's going to come back because there's no way that he's going to, you know, solve this with, uh, with growth. But he's also got a deep overbite, some small laterals that we see there. This is actually with him. He was actually sliding into this position. I think he had more than 14 millimeters of overjet. Um, you know, we didn't end up getting a set in CR until we put in the growth uh, appliance that we, we used. So, you know, I have a time point there, and then I have the final um, uh, time point uh, on a set. Um, you know, sometimes my staff doesn't follow directions and take the set before we put something in. But I wanted to track the response for him. But uh, what we're going to do is augment laterals and you know, do all this fun stuff, right? So growth appliance, and I also want to go ahead and give it a little extra kick, so I'm going to give him uh, an infrared, uh, at-home infrared light. People can pick these up for 100 bucks online and do photobiomodulation of the joint. There's a lot of studies in rabbits and rats that indicate uh, greater bone deposition uh, and, you know, better response with a functional appliance than with, um, uh, without it. Um, and, you know, I really want to just throw the kitchen sink at him. Anything that's going to be helpful will do it. You know, you don't need to pay a lot of money for these meticulous lights. You, off the shelf, this stuff is like, you know, it's $100, and it's every bit as powerful and specced the same way. The original patents and everything are in, you know, with NASA. This has been around for 20, 30 years. It's well established uh, in the literature exactly what it does cellularly. So we certainly leverage any favorable cellular response to move ourselves along the way and improve things. Um, you know, and if people want to wait for concrete evidence, they'll probably won't also recommend flossing for the patient because it's not there either. So we look here um, at generally what I'm doing, lining up the teeth. You know, obviously I'm not dispensing lower aligners. Uh, you can order just the uppers, as I've mentioned, providing a little room around those laterals. Nothing too exciting. Most of the excitement's going to come here with the appliance in. So those examples I showed before, this is the insert, the aligners go on, the attachments go on. You can see where I had to do a button cutout uh, on the uh, buckle of the upper right second by custom because there was an interference when he was placing the aligners. This is where he was. You know, you can see he's well post-peak. We're not going to get any growth, if at all. And he has advanced two millimeters in this position per the um, uh, lab fabricated appliance in my specifications then. So you can see how much overjet there was. So we're making progress. You can see the little shims that I'm placing on there. I ran out of aligners naturally, you know, poor planning. Oh, well. You can scan. You can see that it's not a problem to scan with it on, but we're going to go ahead and dispense more. Here's where we are at full activation at nine months, and you can see how it's trashing that lower arch a little bit. And because I have them on this light, these third molders are now, which had no space and had no room, are coming wandering in at this point, uh, so I'm going to have to go ahead and catch those and, um, you know, rein those in. But you can see how we've these whopping lateral open bites now. With the removal, uh, it's forced the uh, upper molars uh, and intruded them a little bit. It's intruded the uh, buckle segment in the lower, and we've got a big curve of speed. So I'm going to have to gather this up and get things in a good spot. So what do I want to do? I want to hold the class two with elastics uh, and continue uh, you know, moving these teeth into position, okay? 
So the appliance is removed. I told them uh, to settle the bite, class two precision cuts. Now, because of that reverse curve of speed, because I want active eruption against the opposing arch, I'm going to do a button cutout instead of, of a precision cut. I always opt for precision cuts over button cutouts because it's the exact same, you know, force if you set the clincheck up properly, uh, and there's less emergency, so that's always good. I want seven millimeters around a lateral so I can do a little uh, bonding there. Here's what we see. 26 aligners, you can see that I have not only an attachment, but a button cutout on the lower molars because I don't want to have any side effects from, you know, rolling that molar around with an elastic underneath the aligner by accident. You can see that, that third, the third molars are starting to erupt here, so I'm going to catch those and rein those in. And, you know, he had a deep bite, no problem to recover this uh, at all. Um, so you can see here, little IPR, getting everything lined up with the connectors so I can bond the laterals at the refinement. What we see here is the side bite, 26 aligners. And because there's space closer on the top, you know, and uh, he was class two, I just want to support everything uh, with the uh, class two elastics. And I'll have them do the photobiomodulation for maybe, um, you know, a month or two after the appliance is removed, the growth appliance. Okay? So we see here at 16 months of treatment, I've quickly slapped on some foldable composite. This takes me like, you know, a minute or two. You know, we can always adjust the space if we have to go in an IPR. Uh, we put a little topical on the gums there, so that's comfortable for him. Um, this is like right before I, you know, I had him just do a little rinse and then we took some photos. But you can see that we're pretty good on the left side, but with a button, uh, as is the case with many, you know, buttons on the bottom, uh, if uh, they, uh, you know, get hit on uh, or they don't really have enough retention down there, uh, it'll pop off. So his popped off late in treatment, and we've got just a little bit of relapse on that right side there. So I want to settle the bite and adjust the connectors. So what I'm going to do is the IPR between the centrals around the laterals to kind of tighten those up and give me an opportunity to really nicely smooth out uh, the contours around those teeth. Um, and this is great because the retainers fit better. I don't have to go back and retrieve them prior to them getting a crown. They're already prepared for a crown. They know that it's there. They are sold on the aesthetic of it. You've created work for the dentist. The dentist is not unhappy about this at all. And I let the patient know this is temporary. So again, same exact movements as before, settling those teeth together with heavy posterior occlusion. I've now replaced the button cutout or the button on the right to finish that correction there. Uh, and I want to make sure that I'm balancing that with class two elastics at night on the other side uh, to get things into position. And you can see how I'm going to address the connectors here, right? And just make sure that visually on the ClinCheck software, uh, those teeth are touching exactly to, according to the aesthetic proportion. And I did a little IPR to kind of create a little extra overjet on the lower anterior. Let's see again from the side. And you can see where I've left those traditional attachments on there. Okay. So the total treatment was 20 months because of emergencies and other stuff going on with the, like he broke a crown off and stuff during treatment. Uh, it was 15 total appointments. So when we approach it this way, it's far less efficient than the mandibular advancement feature is going to be, but it's a great option right now. But you can see the occlusion, how that's changed before and after. You can see uh, my, you know, cheesy bonding that I've done on the lateral there. Quickly run through that, you can see there. You know, it's not perfect, you know, bonding on those laterals or whatever. You know, it's good enough uh, to hold them over until the uh, restorations are done. You can see the bite correction, how his face looks. 
and then the smile looks pretty good. You can see there on the oblique, we've got everything in a good spot, good support of that lower, um, you know, uh, lip and oral commissure. You can see there's much better balance in his profile now. And where did we go from, you know, the two millimeters, just a teeny little bit uh, from where we were two millimeters advanced to, uh, you know, what we got during treatment. And you can see how the third molars are coming in. So, you know, I will take that, uh, you know, it's certainly helpful, uh, but you really want to throw everything at these patients to get the result uh, that we want. But, well, thank you, Dr. Fry, for a great presentation. A couple of quick reminders, please go to the link that's on your screen right now to take your survey and get your CE certificate. One week from today, this entire program will be archived at the Education tab on your Invisalign doctor site. I want to thank Dr. Fry for a great presentation and for all of you for taking time out on your Friday to join us. We look forward to seeing you on another Ask the Expert webinar. Thanks very much.